so good to see you guys. I want to say a big thank you uh, for coming out. Big thank you to everyone who's tuned in online. However you're joining us today, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're new right now as a church, we're just studying our way through the wonderful gospel of Matthew. And uh, today we come to Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58, where our text calls upon us to wrestle with a very important question of origins. So our text today calls upon us to wrestle with a very important question of origins. Speaking of questions of origin, lately there's been all kinds of chatter about UAPs. Who has heard of a UAP? Raise your hand. I can't believe how few people have heard of UAPs. It was about the same in first service. But UAP, unexplained aerial phenomenon, formerly known as UFOs, all right? Now, I just assumed when I first started hearing about these reports that they were bogus. So naturally, when a friend started talking to me uh, a bunch about UAP sightings, I could not help being the good friend that I am, but rib him a little. So I sent him the follow video created by me and my family that we made on my day off. So take a look. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's an egg salad sandwich. Wait, it's a UAP. <laughs> I know, I'm a jerk, I know, all right. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. But here's the deal. It was not too long after I sent this video at my friend's expense that NASA, the Pentagon, and the U.S. Department of Defense all created task forces to begin studying these sightings. And then scientists began talking about what they're calling alternative physics because the UAPs are doing things that are impossible according to our current understanding of physics. And with credible institutions and organizations and scientists all taking these sightings pretty seriously, people, including me, are starting to ask, where are these things coming from? And if people, as people have wrestled with the answer to this question, some say, oh, they're just the result of doctored videos. Other people say, oh, it's just China or Russia. It's one of our enemies, and that's what's going on with these. Other people say, no, they're demonic in origin. Some people say they are extra temporal, meaning they're from the future. And then others still indeed say, uh, no, they're extraterrestrial, meaning that they're aliens. Now, I don't know what Jack thinks about them being aliens after an alien pulled him off the stage just a few minutes ago. I'm not sure what he has concluded, but just to be clear, so you all know who's preaching to you today, I am not in the alien camp, okay? Just want you to know that before I preach to you God's word. I am not in the alien camp. Now, if I had to pick, my money's on it being one of our enemies, uh, but I don't really know, and I don't know if we'll ever know, but the point is this. All the sightings... All the talk, all the task forces have got us contemplating this question of origins. Where are these things coming from? And I bring this up because this is the very question applied to a different topic that comes up in our text today. An important question of origins. Let me read you our text 
And I want to see if you can see the question for yourself. Here we go. Picking up in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So friends, did you see the question of origins in our text? It's repeated twice. Where did Jesus get the wisdom to teach the way he did? Where did he get the power to perform the miracles he did? Where did he get the power to perform the uh, miraculous demonstrations of power that he performed? Where did this wisdom, where did this power come from? And that's the very question that I'm going to ask you to go ahead and wrestle with after we work our way through the text. Again, if you're new at our church, we always begin with the text explaining what it meant to those whom, uh, to whom it was originally written. And then after understanding that, then we look at what the text means for us. So if you'll hang with me for about 15 minutes or so, we're going to work our way through the text and then we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about what this passage has to do and what it means for our lives today. In our text today, we see five distinct things, the removal, the return, the reaction, the response, and the restraint. And if you're taking notes today, we begin with the removal. We begin with the removal. And we see this in verse 53, where we read, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And what that means is he permanently left Capernaum as his home base of operations. Now he's going to pass through Capernaum again, but he never again will have Capernaum as his home base of operations. And here's why. About one year earlier, Jesus had come to Capernaum to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that a light is going to come to Galilee of the, of the Gentiles. A light sent from God is going to come to the land of uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. And when Jesus came to Capernaum, that is the exact prophecy that was fulfilled. Jesus came to Capernaum to serve as God's light, illuminating for the citizens of Capernaum the way by which they might be saved. And, and Jesus just went and said, set up his home base of operations there in Capernaum. And it was here in Capernaum where Jesus performed most of his miracles. We knew who the Messiah would be when he came because uh, the Bible told us in advance that when Messiah comes, he'll open the eyes of the blind, he'll make the lame walk, he'll make the deaf hear, he'll make the mute sing. And Jesus did all these miracles and nowhere did he do them more than in Capernaum. And Jesus came demonstrating uh, amazing feats of power. He demonstrated power over disease and power over demons and power uh, over sin and power even over death. And nowhere did Jesus demonstrate his power more than in Capernaum. 
Nevertheless, tragically for the citizens of Capernaum, despite these demonstrations that Jesus was who he claimed to be, check out the text, they did not repent. So Jesus issues to them the sternest rebuke saying, and you Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven when you die? No way. You will be brought down to Hades. I tell you that on judgment day, it's going to be more tolerable for you than for the land. I'm sorry. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And friends, after this severe rebuke, Jesus stopped speaking plainly to the citizens of Capernaum and he began to only speak to them in parables that he intentionally didn't explain. And this was an act of judgment against them. It's as if Jesus is saying, I have given you more than enough evidence for you to have a basis for faith to believe on me as your Messiah and to be saved. But since you have not been interested in seeing the light, I'm now going to go ahead and turn the light off. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus arrived in Capernaum, that brought God's light. And now in leaving Capernaum, God's light was removed. So number one, the removal. Jesus left the area and in so doing, removed the light that shone on the way to be saved. Okay, now that you've seen the removal, let's note the second thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the return. And we see this in the first part of verse 54, where we read, and coming to his hometown, meaning Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue. Now, this was Jesus's return to Nazareth because one year earlier, he had been in Nazareth. When he first came up out of Judah in the south, he first came to his hometown, Nazareth, and he preached to them in their synagogue. But Jesus's sermon was so offensive to them that the people dragged him up the hill on a cliff and intended to throw him off to his death. Now, a few years back when I was in Israel, I stood on that very cliff. And let me tell you, this is not a cliff you want to be thrown off the top of. It would result in your certain death. Now, fortunately, Jesus was able to escape their attempt on his life. And he was able to depart from Nazareth. And he went to Capernaum where he spent the next year of his life. But the citizens of Capernaum rejected Jesus as we just covered. So now we see his return to Nazareth. And that's why I've labeled verse 54, the return. Because in leaving Capernaum, Jesus returns to his hometown where one year earlier, the citizens of that town who were former friends, neighbors, and customers for him and his father working as carpenters had tried to kill him. But what does Jesus do when he arrives back in Nazareth? Look with me at verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Uh, I love vocabulary. And one of the words I like is temerity. It means excessive boldness. And that's exactly what Jesus had, temerity. The last time he, imagine if I went and visited a church and when I was there, I preached my sermon and they tried to kill me. And a year later, I'm just like, hey, can I preach there again? You know, and I mean, this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did. He went right back to the people that tried to kill him. And all I can conclude is that Jesus's love for them uh, overcame uh, any fear he had of them. But Jesus's return to Nazareth 
to preach in the synagogues and to tell them from the word of God who he was and that he was the son of God, the savior of the world. This leads nicely to the third thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the reaction, the reaction. We've already seen how the people reacted the first time Jesus came to town. That is after having grown up there for 30 years, the first time he came as the Messiah, the first time he came having begun his public ministry, we already saw their first reaction to his visit. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Let's now see how they reacted the second time Jesus came to town. And that's the very thing we see in verses 53 to 57. The reality is in verses 53 to 57, we see that there were three different responses to Jesus's return. Here's the first of the three. Number one, they were awestruck. Matthew tells us that when they heard Jesus's teaching and saw Jesus's miracles, they were, say it out loud, they were astonished. And friends, that was the typical reaction that everyone had to Jesus anytime they heard him preach, anytime they saw him perform a miracle. We read in Matthew 7 that after Jesus finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. We read in Matthew 8 that after Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him. We read in Matthew 9 that after Jesus healed the paralytic, the crowds were afraid. Now, friends, the word afraid here means to be in such awe of someone that there's also a certain measure of fear. So this is yet again, just one more way to say that the people were awestruck by what Jesus was doing. I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the point. The reaction to Jesus's teaching and miracles in Nazareth was the same reaction that Jesus got anywhere he went, shock and awe, shock and awe. So the first reaction, they were awestruck, but they had a second reaction. Not only were they awestruck, secondly, they were bewildered. They were bewildered. After hearing his teaching and witnessing his miracles, they were baffled and they began to ask each other in, in complete uh, confusion and bewilderment and amazement saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they're just completely confused. And wouldn't you be? If you had grown up with someone and you knew them for the first 30 years of life and then they go away for two years and they come back and now they can command the wind and the waves, they demonstrate complete control over the demonic realm, they can raise the dead, they can speak to the wind and the waves and the waves obey. You know, I mean, just like they were bewildered. No one else in town could speak with supernatural wisdom and no one else in town could perform supernatural works. So they were just utterly bewildered by Jesus's ability to do both. So they began to ask each other, where did he get this power from? Now, this is interesting, and we're going to do a little parenthetical side note here, but there are extra biblical texts. If you're from a Catholic background, you're probably familiar with this. These extra biblical texts are called the infancy gospels. They were written in the second century, long after the four gospels that we have in our Christian Bible, uh, long after these gospels were written. And these 
infancy gospels purport that Jesus did miracles during his childhood. But what I want you to see from the text today is that those accounts are 100% false. When Jesus came to town doing miracles, they weren't like, there goes Jesus doing what he did. I mean, this is, you know, Jesus is back in town. Remember how he used to do these things when he grew up? Remember how he was always raising the dead? Anytime someone would die, he'd show up at the funeral. And he's like, no, this is like, this is not what they did at all. They said, where did he get these things? Because he didn't have these things when he grew up here, but he has them now, and we're just bewildered by this reality. So friends, the infancy gospel, there's a reason it didn't make the canon of scripture that you and I have today. Uh, it's a false report that Jesus did miracles in his childhood. He did not. So reaction number two, they were bewildered. And finally, number three, they were offended. Awestruck bewildered, offended. We read in verse 57, and they took offense at him. Now, took offense here is from the Greek word skandalizo, which simply means to trip over something or to stumble over something. And the idea is this, because Jesus was familiar to them, they tripped on him. They stumbled on him. We have a saying today, you guys didn't hear of UAPs, but maybe you've heard of this saying, familiarity breeds. Okay, you don't know about aliens, but you know the saying. Great, awesome, okay. Familiarity breeds contempt, and that's exactly what was happening with Jesus. So we see the reactions. They were awestruck, they were bewildered, they were offended. There's a little bit of jealousy mixed in here. It's not explicit in the text, but you can read it clearly between the lines. Who are you, Jesus? You think you're better than us? Coming here with all these things? How'd you get these things? Kind of like if one of your childhood friends just, you know, made it big and now they're a billionaire and they're famous and they're, and you're just, you know, back here trying to grow a couple tomatoes in your garden and, you know, they own the tomato plant, you know, uh, <laughs> A little bit of jealousy going on. So that was their reaction. All right, let's see Jesus' response. The fourth thing we see in our text, we'll call it the response. And this is in the second part of verse 57, where in response to the people's reaction, Jesus goes ahead and he quotes a familiar proverb of his day, saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Stated positively, a prophet has honor everywhere he goes except in his hometown, and in his own household. Jesus is saying, if I were a complete stranger, you would have rolled out the red carpet for me. But because I'm familiar to you, you're showing me no respect, no honor. Jesus is saying, you're not rejecting me because I failed to fulfill the messianic prophecies. You're not rejecting me because I've failed to perform the messianic miracles. You're not rejecting me because I failed to demonstrate divine power to prove to you that I am who I say that I am. No, you're rejecting me simply because I'm familiar to you. Again, familiarity breeds contempt, and that's exactly what was happening with Jesus and this brings us to the fifth and final thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the restraint. The restraint. We see the restraint in verse 58, where Matthew tells us, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, 
This is a very misunderstood verse, so pay close attention. Some people wrongly believe that lack of faith can somehow limit Jesus in what he wants to do. And after studying this text deeply, I do not believe that that is the point Matthew is trying to make. Let me try to explain it to you like this. Jesus's miracles were performed for a very specific purpose. Jesus intended people to see the miracles as signs that he was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the great king that God promised to send into the world, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the savior. And Jesus intended that people would see his miracles and believe in him unto salvation. But what we see throughout the gospel record is that anywhere that Jesus's purpose for miracles wasn't being accomplished, we see Jesus either stopping the miracles altogether or limiting the number of miracles that he did in a certain area. For example, do you remember back in Matthew chapter 12, the scribes and the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, show us a sign and then we'll believe. And Jesus said, I'm not giving you a sign. And the idea was, I'm not giving you any more signs because I've already given you about a million of them and you have not believed. And Jesus was saying, I'm not here to put on a show. My miracles have a purpose and they were intended to inspire faith and belief so that people could be saved. And when my miracles are not accomplishing the purpose for which I'm performing them, I'm not going to do them anymore. And that is what Jesus is saying here. So it's in that sense, because of their belief, Jesus exercised restraint. It wasn't that their lack of faith caused Jesus not to be able to do something he wanted to. It was that his miracles weren't accomplishing their purpose. So he just stopped doing them. So he only did a few miracles there. And that's why we've called this point the restraint. Okay. Those were the five things that we saw in our text. And now that we've worked our way through our text, what I want to do now is turn our attention to why God gave us this text. We now understand what it meant to them. And now we're going to turn our attention to what it means for you and I. And I believe that God gave us this text so that we could go ahead and wrestle with the all-important question of origins that we find in our text. Because friends, this question of origins, from where did Jesus derive his power? It is the question that makes all the difference in the world or makes no difference at all. The answer to that question determines everything. And it's this, where? did Jesus get his power from? Friends, we have to remember that you and I only know anything that we know from history because of manuscript evidence. And there is more manuscript evidence for the life of Jesus than there is manuscript evidence for any other ancient event. And it's a landslide in comparison. What I'm trying to say is, if there is reason to believe that anything from history ever happened, there is like 50 million times more reason to believe that what happened with Jesus actually happened. And the record of history of Jesus is this. 
there was a man born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, who ministered all throughout the nation of Israel, who performed countless numbers of miracles and performed unbelievable demonstrations of power. And that record of history causes us to wrestle with this question of origin that the ancient citizens of Nazareth also wrestled with. Where did Jesus get his power from? Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this text, spent a lot of time studying this text. And friends, there's basically three different options that we have for what the answer to that question can be. And I want to present to you the three different options, the three primary options that, that we have as answers to this question. And you can go ahead and consider for yourself which of the options you believe. And again, it makes all the difference what you believe the answer to this question is. Option number one. Option number one, Jesus's power was human in origin. And this is what many people believe. Jesus wasn't divine. He wasn't sent from God. He was just like any other religious leader of any of the major world religions of today. He was just a man, nothing divine about him. Okay. You can choose to believe that. But if that is what you believe, there was nothing divine about Jesus. Then I have a couple questions for you. Number one, what human do you know who has absolute power over disease? Like Jesus demonstrated he had by healing lepers and paralytics, the blind and the deaf, the mute and the lame. Who do you know that can just walk into a room and be like, oh, you have this illness? Gone. Who do you, what, what human do you know who has that absolute power over disease like Jesus had? Number two, what human do you know who has absolute power over nature? Do you have any friends? You're out on a charter fishing boat and the waves are choppy and everyone's feeling nauseous and they just say, be still and everything just calms down. Who do you know? What human do you know who commands nature and nature obeys? I remember as a kid, uh, I was playing basketball outside and it began to rain and I was a good Christian kid growing up and I'm like, if we have faith, we can speak to the mountain and it'll move. And I looked at the rain and I said, stop. And it just continued to rain like it is today. It just continued to rain. So I had to practice basketball in the rain that day. I had to shoot my free throws in the rain that day. Because I had to prep for that free throw shooting contest, which I won, by the way. I can't command nature. I couldn't then. I can't now. Wish I could. But I can't. No human can. But friends, the reliable record of history shows that Jesus commanded nature. Uh, question number three, what human do you know who has absolute power over the demonic realm? Like Jesus demonstrated he had when he encountered the two demon-possessed men in the country of the Gadarenes who were filled with legions of demon, every single one of whom obeyed Jesus's every command. What human do you know? who can prove his power to forgive sin through miraculous healings like Jesus did with the paralytic in Matthew 9. And finally, what human do you know who holds power over death itself as Jesus proved he had by bringing Jairus's daughter back from the dead as well as many others as well in the end himself. What human do you know who has power over death, power over disease, power over nature, power over sin? So for me personally, I find option one, Jesus's power was human in origin to be a very unsatisfying option. All right, then moving on. Option number two, 
If option one's no good, let's look at option number two. Some say Jesus' power. No, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't human in origin. Some say this, Jesus' power, it was demonic in origin. Well, to help us evaluate this option, let's visit the record of demonic activity found in the Gospels compared to the activity of Jesus. You ready? In Matthew 9, the demon mentioned made a man mute, but Jesus made this man speak. In Matthew 12, the demon mentioned made a man blind, but Jesus made him see. In Matthew 15, the demon mentioned severely oppressed a certain woman's daughter, but Jesus set that daughter free from this oppression. In Matthew 17, the demon mentioned caused a little boy to have seizures and often cast him into the fire or into the water in order to kill him, but Jesus released that boy from such suffering. In Mark chapter 5, the demon mentioned caused a man to be out of his mind and to walk around unclothed, screaming day and night, cutting himself with stones. But after one encounter with Jesus, that same man was sitting before Jesus, calm, clothed, and in his right mind. On and on the list goes. What I'm trying to show you is this. The biblical record reveals that demons oppress and torment and afflict people in order to cause suffering. And all we see from Jesus is alleviating suffering. As we read in Acts chapter 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So in some, demons hurt people. Jesus helps people. Plus, how would it make sense for Satan to work against himself? Just as the angels do God's bidding, so the demons do Satan's bidding. And if Jesus was demonically empowered to do his miracles, then you would have Satan working against Satan. And this makes less sense than option one. That Jesus' uh, power was human in origin. This option, it makes even less sense than the last option. And that's why I'm so happy that there is an option three. So if you're still taking notes, option three is this. Jesus' power wasn't human in origin. Jesus' power, it, it wasn't uh, demonic in origin. No, option number three, Jesus' power was divine in origin. And to me, this is the only satisfying option. The reliable record of history shows that Jesus went around performing mighty miracles. And there's really only three main options for where the power came for doing them. His abilities were either human in origin, demonic in origin, or divine in origin. And it's only option three that actually makes any sense. If Jesus were mere man, he couldn't have uh, demonstrated such great feats of power. And if Jesus was empowered by demons and keeping with the character of a demon, he would have went around hurting people, not helping people. But if Jesus was God, as I believe him to be, and as many of you do as well, then it perfectly explains how he could demonstrate power over disease and nature and sin and even death. If Jesus was God in the flesh, then it explains his ability to open the eyes of the blind, make the lame walk, make the deaf hear, make the mute sing for joy. So if you can't tell, I've already wrestled with the question of origins. Where did Jesus's power come from? 
And now as we end our time together, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and wrestle with that same question if you've never wrestled that question down to a definite, unequivocal answer. Where do you stand on this question? It's either options one, two, or three. His power was human, demonic, or divine. Where are you at in terms of what the answer is? Which option do you believe? Now, let me tell you what you're going to do. If you have a prior commitment to rejecting Jesus, no matter what, then you're going to behave and respond like the ancient citizens of Nazareth did. Remember when Jesus came to them? I mean, he performed the feats of power. He performed the messianic miracles. He fulfilled the messianic prophecies. But they just had a prior commitment to rejecting Jesus, the person uh, whom they were so familiar with that they just said he couldn't be who he claims to be. And if you, like them, have a prior commitment to just rejecting Jesus and just refusing to believe, no matter what the evidence says, then you are right now in this moment going to do exactly what they did 2,000 years ago. You're going to find something in Jesus for which you can take offense. And you're going to let that offense be the basis by which you reject Jesus as your Savior and Lord. But if you're open to the truth and you think through the options and you see today through eyes of faith what is self-evident that Jesus could do what he did because he was God, then friends, the only logical response is to begin following him in discipleship. And that's my invitation to you today. Begin following Jesus in discipleship because he is God. And if you'd like to begin that journey today, it'd be my great privilege to pray with you as our time comes to a close. So I'm going to ask this. If you want to pray with me, would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Everyone online, we haven't forgotten about you. We're so glad that you're with us. Would you stay with us just a moment longer? And, and would you pray together with us? Maybe in your heart you'd say uh, something along these lines to God. Say, Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, today for this all-important question of origins. Where did Jesus' power come from? God, I'm not just going to dismiss it as, oh, Jesus's power was human in origin. God, that makes no sense. I, I, don't, I don't accept that. I reject that. No mere human could do the things that Jesus did. God, nor do I accept that Jesus's power was demonic in origin. Demons hurt people. Jesus helped people. God, I'm not going with that one either. God, the one I'm going with is option three. I believe that Jesus's power was divine in origin. And I believe that Jesus was and is, was God in the flesh and is God now. And I thank you for sending Jesus to come to earth, to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, taking upon himself the punishment that my sins deserved so that I could go free. And God, I know the wages of sin is death, but I thank you that the gift of God is eternal life through faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Today, I put my faith and my trust in him to save me from the penalty for sin. And today, because I believe he is God, I choose to begin following him in discipleship. God, help me on this journey. Help me to just learn the words and ways of Jesus. 
and help me to live them out in my daily life. And God, I pray that you'd be with me every step of the journey. I pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, whose power was from heaven. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.